Job 11.14. Last week, the the internet, uh, or at least reformed branches of the internet, was fairly buzzing with news that uh, this man here, uh, Benny Hinn, uh, the infamous tele-evangelist based in the US, had renounced his prosperity gospel theology. Basically, the belief that God automatically rewards monetary generosity, usually in the form of cash gifts to a ministry, uh, with monetary blessings and health. Recently, Hinn has admitted that he's rejected this reward theology uh, on the basis of his appeals. Giving has become such a gimmick, uh, he says, it's making me sick in my stomach. And I've been sick for a while too. I just couldn't see it. I think it's time we see it like it is. The gospel is not for sale. Amen. Uh, Another maverick uh, preacher, Joyce Meyer, uh, another TV preacher, admitted that she has also rejected the reward doctrine. Every time someone, she said, has problems, it was because they didn't have enough faith. If you got sick, you didn't have enough faith. If your child died, you didn't have enough faith. Well, that's not right. Well, people have been telling these folks for for years that uh, that was the case, that they were way off beam, and it's encouraging to hear them say that. Uh, Time will tell whether uh, their huge investment in uh, all of these uh, glitzy ministries will uh, enable them to keep their distance from that dodgy theology. What they have been saying would certainly have been of help to Job because Job is on the receiving end of this reward and punishment package that we could call it. That if you are righteous or if you have a lot of faith, God will reward you materially. You'll have family, you'll have flocks, you'll have money. But on the other hand, uh, if you are unrighteous or lack faith, then you will be punished. These things will be taken away from you. Job, it seemed, knew the blessing of God. Uh, And he indeed was a righteous man, and he had uh, plenty of flocks, he had a large family, plenty of wealth. But now the farm has been lost to marauders, his family have died in the collapse of the building, and Job's health has gone also. And his friends have gathered around him to tell them, Job, it's obvious to us why this has happened. It's because of your sin. Now you can imagine this is simply added to Job's pain. And what Job does not know, but what we know, because we have chapters 1 and 2 to inform us, is that it is not God that is punishing Job, but Satan uh, is attacking Job. Satan has suggested that Job's only in it for what he can get out of it. He only fears God because God has given him good things. But, says Satan, take these things away and you'll see. And everyone else will see. Job was a mercenary all along. He is only worshipping you because you have given him so much stuff. Well, uh, we've seen Job go very low indeed. uh, To the point that though Satan never makes him abandon his hope, Nevertheless, uh, he is distorting his understanding of God so that Job has become confused about things like God's goodness and his justice. Well, we're going to look at the the chapters before us under three headings. First of all, uh, Zophar offers a parched man vinegar. Secondly, we'll hear that 
the wounded lion roars. And then thirdly, we're going to uh, see shafts of sunshine on a rainy day. First then, Zophar's uh, cold comfort. Zophar offers a parched man vinegar. Job is suffering excruciating agony. Uh, he's lost everything. Uh, particularly painful is the loss of his family. Now his health is gone. Uh, chapter 3, remember back to that, it's that uh, chapter of uh, bleak poetry. I mean, it's a magnificent chapter as literature, but the, the portrait that it portrays of the, the state of Job's uh, soul, his mind, his, his whole psychology is, is tragic. He ends with the summary, I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. A great, uh, a great Christian book uh, kind of almost to be read in parallel with uh, the series in Job is C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed. I mentioned it a couple of times already. C.S. Lewis wrote the book on the, the loss of his wife, Joy Davidson. And the, the great thing about the book is that like the book of Job, it's written with amazing honesty and C.S. Lewis documents his feelings uh, throughout this period of bereavement. And he writes in the book, No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet I want others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. So that, that bit at the end there, uh, which captures the fragility of someone who's really suffering, uh, they're not really up most of the time for heavy-duty conversation, which is exactly what the three comforters of Job want to give him. They show no sensitivity. Uh, essentially, they're, they're subscribers to uh, today's TV evangelists' packaged system of reward and punishment. No room for ambiguities, no room for con exceptions. It's served up with little consideration for how Job is feeling. Uh, if we look at the kind of distinctives of the three guys, there's Eliphaz, uh, who uh, says that it's impossible for a mortal being to be entirely righteous before God. You can't be perfect, Job. Therefore, Job must not be acknowledging some sin which is responsible for God's punishment. Bildad, the second one, uh, his argument is that it's impossible for God to pervert justice. God must be acting justly. Therefore, you deserve this, Job. Zophar, the one that uh, we're looking at this evening, he stresses God's amazing knowledge of all things. He's saying to Job, Job, God is omniscient and knows sins that are even unknown to you. Secret sins, perhaps going way back. 
And it's because of these that you're suffering. Zophar begins with all the bluster of someone who thinks he's defending God's honour. Are all these words he asks to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? He puts Job down along with the mockers. In other words, those who are against God. He speaks about God's great knowledge, his penetrating wisdom, with language that's, that's beautiful and orthodox at the same time. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? God can know every detail of Job's sin. God has come along knowing Job's sin and has condemned Job and is about to sentence. It would be foolish to challenge God's judgment because of this penetrating knowledge. That's so far argument. What must Job do then? Well, Job must put away the sin which has led to this punishment and he must ask for God's forgiveness. If he does that, then he will leave his troubles behind and he will be secure and many will court his favour. The good old days will return. There's so many ironies compressed into what Zophar is saying. See, on the one hand, he's saying that God's ways are so much higher than ours and yet he pretends, or at least he, he presents himself as somebody who knows and understands God's ways. This is exactly why God is doing what he is doing. He shows no humility before God. And worse, the, the very motivation that he's urging on Job, uh, repent and you'll get back all your blessings, would be playing into Satan's hand. That's exactly what Satan is saying. It would prove Satan right. If Job, renouncing his integrity, repented in order to get material blessings. That's what Satan has accused Job of doing. That's what Zophar is encouraging Job to do. Now, Zophar, we said earlier, is, is probably the least attractive of the, the three comforters. He's the most aggressive, the least sensitive. The alarming thing is that it's so easy to see ourselves slipping into his own mistakes. The very language that Zophar uses uh, is orthodox. Uh, in fact, we would find echoes of his language in the New Testament. His words about God's wisdom are echoed in Paul's doxology, in Romans 11, verse 33, when, when Paul extols the great wisdom of God. And so, you know how it's easy to come along with refined theology, you know, rarefied theology, and yet not be able to help people because we've got everything kind of cut and dried in our own minds. And we lack that, that empathy and that sympathy which all of Job's friends lack also. So we can, we can use Bible language and, and Bible theology and still be clobbering somebody over the head with it. And we can also slip into the way of thinking that's at the back of the three friends theology that you, you get what you deserve. And that can mean that if we come across people in need and, and we think to ourselves, well, they've probably got what they deserve. <laughs> And we're slow to help because we think that bad people get punished 
And we, we slip into that because it's a kind of natural way of thinking. Something else which uh, impressed itself on me, thinking of the three friends, is that none of them, you notice this, none of them have actually offered anything uh, of a practical nature to Job. Yeah. None of them have, have expended any of their money or done anything that would alleviate Job's suffering. And yet when you contrast that to what our Lord said in, that uh, we should do when we uh, find uh, a neighbour in need, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan who invested his, his time and his money and his convenience on somebody who was in distress. See, all of these ways we, we're learning by negative, the, the negative example of the comforters, how, how we could actually bring uh, the comfort of God to others. And then there's a turning point, chapters uh, 12 to the end. The lion, the wounded lion, roars. Job has had enough. Job has had enough. He's borne his suffering with great dignity. Uh, he has been a lion in the land. He's been uh, a ruin. Uh, and he has lost all that made him once majestic. But now the lion roars again and he tells his friends for the first time what he thinks of them. They have spoken in pride. They have essentially come up and said, we are the people. And Job says, well, you may indeed be the people and wisdom will perish when you die. But let me tell you, I am no fool. I'm as smart as you are. I know the package of reward and punishment. But here's the problem. Here's the spanner in the works. I called to God and he answered me. I walked with God. And now I have this. Now I'm suffering. And it just does not make sense. I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I'm suffering while those who are in God, including the marauders and Job's probably thinking of the Sabaean marauders who came and took his flocks. They're enjoying peace. My situation just does not fit the package. Now because Job wouldn't relinquish his commitment uh, to A, his right standing with God and B, his commitment to God's sovereignty so all things come to pass by God's ordination, it leaves him with questions about God's justice. What kind of a God is it I'm clinging to? Again, from the same book, this was the, the problem that vexed C.S. Lewis. He tells us that he didn't ever come to the point where he was going to give up on believing God, but he began to wonder about God's character. Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But rather, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Now in verses uh, 7 to 12 of chapter uh, 12, verses 7 to 12, uh, 
sounds as though uh, Job is, is speaking to his friends, but actually uh, the, the pronoun you right the way through and these verses is a singular pronoun. Uh, so it looks as though Job is, is parodying the advice that his friends have been giving him. Uh, and he's kind of throwing it back in their face, giving their own wisdom package back to them. And the suggestion in the verses is that the package is just far too simplistic. You're saying to me, Job, saying that even the wild animals know that this is the way it is. You're telling me this is the way that the ancients, our elders, the old men who know so much, have taught. Well, let me tell you something. It's a lot more complex than that. And he goes on to complain that uh, in their neat package, they haven't grappled with the power and the fury of God's acts. God is not a domestic cat, but God is a roaring lion. He tears down, he imprisons men, he brings about drought and flood, he gives victory and power, gives wisdom, but at the same time, he can take wisdom away. He can make fools of judges. He can bring down kings and priests and men who've been long established in the land, verses 18 and 19. He makes nations great, then he brings them down. He humbles the leaders of the world and he takes their reason from them, leaving them to stagger. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. Now in chapter 13, uh, Job makes his big move forward. Uh, he declares that he will do that which he had previously said uh, he couldn't do because it was just impossible. He's going to appeal to God. He's going to argue his case with God. And he challenges his friends for having spoken deceitfully for God, verse 7. Even though they've made out that they're on God's side, they've smoothed over the situation. They've tried to compress reality into their package. They've tried to make Job say things which would not have been true in order to suit their scheme. And Job will not do that. They're covering up the world as it is. And Job is now energized to appeal to God himself. And Job realizes that this is risky business, that God may kill him for such audacity. And yet we have this famous verse, though he slays me, yet will I hope in him. Even though God kills me, I'll still do this. I, will, I, I hope that God will hear and will answer my appeal and will vindicate my ways. I will surely defend my ways to his face. And then in chapter 13, verses 20, right on to chapter 14, uh, Job has stopped talking directly to his friends and begins to make his appeal to God. He's praying to God. And he pleads, first of all, that he might have a bit of relief. Oh Lord, just give me an intermission, a, a pause in the suffering, in order that I might make my appeal to you. And as he prays, as he continues on, there are notes of, of despair and confusion. He knows that sin is at the root of all trouble in the world. And notice that Job has never denied that he is uh, a sinner. He's never claimed to be sinless. He's claimed to be righteous in the sense of being right with God. We know that he's a man who made sacrifice at the beginning of uh, the chapter. But why is he suffering so much? Where is the justice in his pain? 
He asked, how many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offence and my sin. And for Job, the, the greatest pain in this situation is his loss of the friendship of God. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 14, Job's thoughts are turning again to darkness. He's thinking about the inevitability of death and life and asks God simply to leave him alone and finish his allotted time in peace. There's notes of despair and anguish, perplexity. God, we're so insignificant. My life is fleeting. It's like a rotting fruit. Vanishing away like a flower that will blossom and fade, like a shadow. Lord, why do you continue to keep such a, a fleeting mortal under surveillance? He thinks about his future. There's no return from death. Different for a tree. Put an axe to the tree and sprouts will come again, shoots will spring up from the trunk. But man dies and breathes his last. He lies down and is no more. Job is simply saying what he sees. These are the observable facts. People haven't been resurrected. Remember, this, this great doctrine, which is our hope, is only dimly grasped in the Old Testament. And so it's dark, despairing. And then we have uh, what we're longing for as we read uh, in the book of Job. We have one of those shafts of sunlight. Think of a, a, a rainy day, a cloudy day. And then one of these blessed uh, intermissions. The sun pierces the cloud and the rain. And reminds us of better days. Job no longer, no sooner has dismissed the, the very idea of a resurrection than he begins to consider the wonderful possibility. Remember this morning we said we're hardwired to believe that death is an unnatural intruder. We have this hope within us and we see that in Job. If only you would set a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait for my renewal to come. Beautiful word, isn't it? My renewal. Jesus speaks about the regeneration of all things at the end. Same idea. And there's a shaft of light bursting through the clouds. The darkness and the despair are lifted even momentarily. And there's this thought of life beyond the grave. And what is sweetest in the thought is the personal nature of it, his friendship with God restored. And it's also beautiful. Uh, God will call and Job will answer. And not only will God call, he will call with love and with longing. He says, you will long for the creature your hands have made. Job will be renewed. And in this renewal, God will be watching him, but will be watching him differently from before. Job is agonized by the, the idea that God has him on, as it were, a closed circuit television 24-7, looking for his sins. 
But now, in this renewal, uh, God will be watching to protect him. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. Because his sin will have been dealt with. For my offences will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. This is one of those uh, less mentioned uh, metaphors for God dealing with sin. There, there are so many in the Old Testament. Uh, we have in, in Micah uh, the idea of God uh, drowning our sin. Our, our sin is cast into the depths of the sea. And there's another Old Testament picture of God blotting out our sin like a cloud. Just like a cloud uh, disappears with the sunshine. Our sin vanishing, never to be seen. And here we have God uh, taking our sin and putting it in a bag and sealing up the bag. No one is going to bring that out into the open again. God has dealt with it. Again, the, the idea of covering over sin. It's a common Old Testament uh, picture. Uh, we have the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and temple and the blood of the sacrifice covering over the Ark, which had the commandments and therefore the, the reminder of our breaking of the commandments, our sin covered over. And it's as though for a, a brief moment, Job has an inkling of the cross and of the re reconciliation that Jesus will bring and the new hope of resurrection life that Jesus will bring. But it's all so brief because the sun disappears, the clouds roll down again. In his present mood, Job is unable to sustain this hope. And without the hope of resurrection, there's no real hope. Judgment is certain and relentless and the, the chapter, chapter 14 ends with this picture of an eroding river. So it's a powerful surging river and it's buffeting a, a mountain, a rocky mountain and the relentless power of water must have its way. It will, it will break down uh, even the strongest rock and Job sees the, the inevitability of God's power and judgment wearing away his hope so that all the sufferer that Job has to think about in the end is his own misery. So we end on this dark note from the, the upbeat glimpse of sunshine uh, we slip back into the darkness of Job's suffering. Now why do we, here's, a, here's a, a question which you may be asking, why do we need such an extended survey of anguish in the Bible? Why has God given us 42 chapters of, of Job? Job's bleakness. Why do we have this juggernaut of a book which refuses to opt for uh, the easy options, simplistic solutions to suffering. Why so much brutal honesty? Well, as we said earlier, one, one of the purposes for us to grapple with, with Job, one of the reasons why we, 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 we weigh and consider the speeches of friends that we know are not good friends, 
is that we might be better comforters ourselves, that we might be able to, to really get alongside and help people who are suffering, especially our brothers and sisters, people that we know are not living under the punishment of God because Jesus has borne the punishment for them. We have insight here. But also, and, and, and this is really why it is all so relevant to us coming to the table in a minute. What we have in the account of Job's suffering, the, the righteous man's suffering, is an inkling into the suffering of the only truly righteous man who suffered, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the Bible, <coughs> the rest of the Bible, we're, we're, given, we're given some glimpses of what Jesus suffered. Think of Psalm 22. Think of the accounts of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think of the implications of his cry from the cross. But in the book of Job, we have a sustained study of what it is like for someone to feel abandoned by God. For, for someone who is trusting God to feel that God is hiding his face from him. And when we taste Job's disorientation and his confusion, this sense of being cut off from God and misunderstood, even mocked by those closest to him on earth, then we gain some insight into what it is for Jesus to actually bear the punishment of God. Because here's the difference. Job only thought that God was punishing him. Satan was persuading him that God was against him. It was Satan that was against him. But for Jesus, God was punishing him. He was actually taking punishment for sin. His death was what we call a propitiation. It was turning aside the wrath. There was real anger for sin because Jesus had been made sin for us. And so Job is helping us to understand the, 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 the bitterness of the cup, the brokenness symbolized by the bread, the wormwood and the gall of Calvary. But it's also helping us to appreciate the wonder of what Jesus has achieved. Even in this glimpse, that these few verses are in the, the multitude of verses where Job sees sunshine. They give us uh, this glimpse of the hope that Jesus has brought to him. Sunshine determined to break through the cloud of rain and bring hope of resurrection, even momentarily. What Job longed for, Jesus has won for us. Because uh, Jesus suffered, our offences truly have been sealed up in a bag and our sin has been covered over. We are confidently expecting that day when the Lord will call and we will answer and we will enter his presence with joy. And that bursts of sunlight, those shafts of sunlight will become for us an endless day when we are with the Lord. And it's our, 
our great joy now to come to the table and to thank Jesus for bearing that, for bearing the wormwood and the gall, the isolation, the misunderstanding, the disorientation of Calvary, that we might enter the sunshine of eternal day and have this living hope that is absolutely certain that we cannot fade or vanish. So may God bless his word to us and uh, enable us to come with deepened appreciation now uh, to the, the table of the Lord. <clears throat> Just uh, have a word about uh, the, the way that we, we conduct the Lord's Supper and to, to spell out as simply as we can uh, our grounds for coming and, and taking the bread and the wine. Uh, the Lord's Supper is not something which is unique to our congregation or our denomination. It is for all of the Lord's people. It's for those who know the Lord Jesus as their Savior and have professed him and are members of the visible body of Christ, members uh, of uh, his church on earth. Uh, we are to come, uh, whether we're feeling up or down, uh, because it is for those who are hungering and thirsting. This is a meal uh, for the hungry. And we do it in obedience to Jesus, who has commanded us to come and to do this in remembrance of him. So uh, when you're invited to come to the front seats, if you are taking uh, the Lord's Supper, as we, we do uh, in our congregation here, uh, and you respond to that, it's not in any sense of being worthy, merit-worthy, deserving this, but rather what you're doing is you're confessing your need. I'm a needy sinner, and I need Jesus, and I need to be reminded of his love. And, and some of you tonight won't be taking the Lord's Supper, uh, and, and therefore what I want you to encourage you to do uh, is to let it speak to you, uh, because there's blessing uh, from looking on. This is a dramatization of God's love. It's an outworking of the gospel in a vivid way. So we hear the gospel uh, preached, we hear it with our ears, but we, we see it enacted in the Lord's Supper. And if you're not taking part, but watching, then ask the Lord to grant you faith in Jesus, who is the one to whom the supper points. And that will be for you the great blessing. The great blessing, you see, is knowing Jesus and resting on him. And so, uh, let us indeed uh, do these things in obedience to him. So we're going to sing, and uh, during the singing of the hymn Jerusalem, uh, if uh, you're going to take part, then please come to the front so that the elders can distribute the bread and the wine uh, afterwards. So let us sing uh, to God's praise. See him in Jerusalem, walking where the crowds are. Once these streets had sung to him, now they cry for murder. Such a frail and lonely man 
holding up the heavy cross, see him walking in Jerusalem on the road to save us.